Hello and welcome to the Rogue Monkey podcast, the show that shares insightful stories to motivate, inspire and support you following your own dreams through both work and life. We encourage our listeners to shoot for the stars and today's interview is very much akin to that. Today I'm joined by Rob, the co-founder of Braided Communications, a tool that's been developed to support the well-being of astronauts on future Mars missions and beyond to overcome the significant time delays with communications in deep space. Now how I stumbled across this story and how the project has come to be is absolutely incredible. It's a mind-bending conversation and to give you a glimmer of what's to come, Rob is an astrophysicist who, with his co-founder, conceptualised and then created a solution to long-distance communication in space. The development of that solution is currently being supported by the UK Space Agency, the European Space Agency and NASA. Now, I'm not going to say much more than that as the journey that Rob takes us on is fascinating. Just before I start, if I can ask that you give us a quick subscribe on whatever platform you're joining us on today so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please make sure you give it a share with someone that you think would enjoy it. Right, let's get into our conversation and episode 69 of the Rogue Monkey podcast. Earth to Mars, over. The story of braided communications. Hello, Rob, and welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Very good. How are you? Yeah, excellent. Been excited about recording this one for a long time. We connected seven, eight months ago now, believe it or not, by sheer chance. And uh, we've ended up sitting here chatting on a podcast. So do you fancy giving our, our listeners and viewers out there just, a, I guess, a quick introduction as to who you are and your background? Yeah, happy to. So thanks. Yeah. And it was a strange way of meeting because we started by chatting on a train completely by by chance so yeah one of those uh, odd moments but uh, that was a great conversation and really looking forward to this one so um yeah my background um is um i always been a science um science nerd i love science i ended up going to university and studying astrophysics um which i really loved um but i never had any intention of becoming an academic i always wanted to go into um uh into proper work if you like if that's a way of saying it um i ended up after university going off traveling um i've got a huge passion for traveling always have had um since i've been able to to travel and um uh, and i uh, ended up um traveling around the world and finding places where um i kept running into this old company called cable and wireless which was the old british empire telecom telephone company and when i came back they were looking for for people to join them and they said we'll send you overseas to work so i ended up going into telecoms without any planning at all, purely because it was a great way of getting me to go and work overseas, which I, I did end up living in Hong Kong and absolutely loved it for a while. Um, spent a long time in telecoms, um, but always um, uh, always had a sort of <clears throat> a passion for the scientific side. So even though I was on the sales and the, and the commercial side, I was always the one talking to the engineers about how we could play with their engineering toys and make new products out of them and stuff like that. So that's where I sort of spent the beginning of my, of my career. Um, in, in telecoms, building on uh, a bit of science background and a little bit of a uh, little bit of sort of sales uh, and marketing background. Um, eventually, um, uh, you know, sometimes it was planned, sometimes it wasn't. But eventually, partly planned, partly not planned, I ended up moving into a, um, a field called digital health when it first started. So it's pretty uh, pretty big now, and it's it's grown massively during the pandemic. The ability to help people to take care of themselves. 
by um, measuring vital signs remotely and sending that information into a clinician who can then interpret it and advise the patient or the, or the person. So I've been doing that for a good number of years in both physical health and mental health. And along the way there, I met uh, my co-founder in Braided Communications, Drew, um, and, uh, and we started the journey we're on now. So uh, uh, there's a lot to unpick there. And uh, uh, one of the things that's really curious, especially obviously knowing where we're going to go with this conversation, this, this, um, this passion for almost exploration and going places, if you like, mm. what, what, what was the, your earliest memory of actually kind of that becoming a thing, if you like, of actually going, I really want to go out there and explore. Let's, let's call it explore the world, but actually just that nature of going out and going to different places and trying new things. Um, so, good question. so, um, I don't know why, but I've always, I've always had it in me that I wanted to do that. And, um, when I was a kid, we, you know, we, we, we never did. We, you know, we, um, we went on holidays to fantastic places like Cornwall and Wales and places like that in uh, windswept caravan parks and campsites. And they were great, but we never really went overseas. I think before I, uh, before I went to university, the only place we'd ever been was over to Sweden, actually, because my mum had a pen friend from when she was a child. And that was the only foreign holiday we had. Um, uh, but I always wanted to, to travel. So after university, I, uh, I, I worked at home for a year, saved some cash, um, and then went off for a year's traveling. So actually, the first time I got on a plane, it was on my own to, uh, to Miami Airport, which was a little bit daunting because I'd never been through an airport. I didn't really know what I was doing um, and ended up landing in Miami at the beginning of a year traveling and working around the world. So I've always wanted to do that. It's a bit daunting, but it's hugely exciting. Um, you know, you, you meet so many different people if you throw yourself into it um and um you know as you meet different people you learn different things you have different experiences you see some fantastic places um you have some fantastic times you have some pretty ropey times as well and you learn a lot from that so i don't know where it came from but it's always been there and i think it's it's something that i've talked about i guess with guests previously is that often you go down roads that you're not necessarily sure where you're heading but you know that's the direction you sort of want to head in and i think too often it's people like having everything planned out meticulously mm. and and actually life isn't like that and almost the people that can adapt and evolve and take opportunities when they emerge are the ones that perhaps end up in seats like you're in now so I'm really mm. curious as to this this transition kind of leading up to I guess pre-braided communications from first discussion idea concept any thought around potentially the problem that you're going to go on to solve all the way through to actually where you are now yeah sure I mean actually an interesting sort of side on that is one of the things I've said a few times over the years is I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up um uh, and I you know I, I thought I did a few times and then stuff happens and takes you down different paths so the move from telecoms to digital health was very much one that just sort of happened but I absolutely loved it I really uh, got a lot out of being that and that's what led in into into braided so this, this the, the story in the background of braided is i was um uh, i was working in a mental health care company so we were providing online cognitive behavioral therapy um to people uh working with the nhs um and uh we had a therapist he was a part-time therapist working for us up in scotland um and with some relationships he had and some relationships i built we were starting to get some inroads to support patients in Scotland where we'd never worked before. We'd all done all our work in, in, in England. Um, so we were basically 
um, pursuing that opportunity. So I was up in Scotland a couple of times um, uh, with him. His name's Drew. He's my co-founder in Braided now. Um, and we were um, going to some pretty remote places in Scotland. So uh, one of them was the Western Isles. We were in Stornoway, which isn't that remote one or sort of uh, the big scheme of things, but it kind of is from the UK point of view. Um, and we uh, we were up there and we basically um, shook hands on a deal with the NHS in that part of Scotland to deploy our services. So that was that was fantastic. Um, and I was obviously very happy because being uh, you know, UKMD of the company, that was another another customer contract. So that was fantastic. Um, Stornoway, you have to sort of you know wait for the next flight out. There's not like flights every half an hour, whatever. So we had plenty of time to to, to sort of uh, uh, spend time thinking ahead of leaving. And I got back to the airport and, and Drew was was at the airport and he was uh, he wasn't looking as happy as I was. And I thought, hey, what's up? You know, we've just done a deal. This is fantastic. And he was just scribbling some stuff on this piece of paper. Um, and I looked at it and with my background in astrophysics, it seemed like he was drawing the orbits of planets and trying to think about what we have, something like that. And I was like, why is he doing this? So I asked him, so why, what's this? Uh, and he said, oh, I'm just trying to do some sort of uh, uh, some maths. And I looked at it and I, with my background, I was able to, I said, I don't understand what you're doing here. I could start to answer the question. Couldn't finish answering the question because it was a long time ago that I did my degree, but I was able to start it. And we had this weird conversation where Drew said, oh, wow, you know some of this stuff. He said, I've, uh, I've been looking for an astrophysicist for quite a while to chat about this. And of course, I started laughing because I am an astrophysicist. More importantly, everyone in the company knew I was an astrophysicist because it's a bit weird having someone who's an astrophysicist running that kind of company. So it was kind of on the website and everyone knew. Um, turned out Drew hadn't bothered reading the website um, of the company that was paying him money. So <laughs> he didn't know that at all. So we had that strange conversation. I said, look, I can help you with this. I need to probably go back and look at some books and maybe even ask an old mate or two. But why are you doing it? You know, And, and he's like, oh, it's just something I'm working on on the side. Well, fair enough. You know, entitled to do that. That's, that's fine because you're a part-timer. I was really curious, though. It's like, you know, why is he thinking about this? And then a few weeks later, I was back up again to explore more of this sort of Scottish opportunity. And um, and, I, and I asked him in more detail and he said, oh, I'll, I'll tell you. But, you know, it's just a crazy idea. So so please, uh, please you know, keep it quiet. Said, yeah, of course, you know, this time we were pretty good friends and we spent so long together. So he told me this idea and he said that he, he started thinking about when humans go to Mars. Um, you know, there's lots of challenges when humans eventually go to Mars, which obviously hopefully will happen sometime in the next 15, 20 years, or whatever. Some obvious challenges around, you know, you have to have a rocket, you have to be able to recycle water, etc. But he's a psychotherapist and he's got a specialism in emotional attachment. So he came at it in a slightly different viewpoint. And he thought, when you send people away to Mars, they can't communicate back to Earth in the same way they do today. You know, you, the way we're talking now, I say something, you hear me straight away. If you were on Mars, it might take depending on where Mars and Earth are, it might take five, 10, even 20 minutes for my voice to reach you and equally the same time for your reply to reach me. So you can't have a normal conversation. It's fairly basic physics. Everyone's known this for, for, for a long, long time. Um, and operationally, you know, you start to think, well, that means the people going on these deep space missions are going to need to be much more self-sufficient than the people who are going around the Earth or the International Space Station, which is much closer. So operationally, you can think about how you would deal with it. But he thought from a human being point of view, if you're in that spaceship and you can't talk to your mother, your brother, your, your, your partner or whatever, that is actually really bad for you psychologically and then really bad for you um, uh, physiologically as well. So in simple terms, you know, you will become unwell and you will stop functioning as a normal human being if you can't rely on the same emotional connections as you have normally. So he thought, well, 
these clever people at NASA must have solved that problem because they couldn't possibly even consider planning a trip to Mars without solving that problem. Um, I wonder how they've done it, though, because he knew enough about physics to know it wasn't possible because of the speed of light not being capable of being broken, etc. So he just went and did a bit of digging out of pure interest. And he found out that they hadn't solved that problem. They knew it was an issue. Um, they thought about it mainly operationally rather than psychologically. But they just said, well, we can't fix that. So we're kind of going to ignore it. And we're going to, you know, if you dig deep enough, it's like we're going to recruit teams of astronauts who are less susceptible to emotional isolation. And there are such people, but they... You know, everyone's on a spectrum, but the people who are less susceptible certainly are not completely, you know, they, they will be affected to a degree. And then they don't also, those people typically don't make good teammates with other people, so it wouldn't be a good crew. So we realised there was a big problem uh, that seemed to be completely impossible to solve. Um, and that's where he started thinking about the problem. Um, and he lives up in Scotland, he does like climbing and walking and stuff, and he said that he was kind of walking in the hills and and just don't think about it and gradually came up with the idea of how because we're all quite plastic in the way we communicate as human beings that actually if you could leverage the plasticity if you like to find a way that it made it feel to people at either end as if they're in a real-time conversation even if, even if they weren't that it might be possible to sort of solve the problem and he came up with the original concept of braiding which is multiple threads of conversation kind of intertwined and and presented to people in a, in a, in a different way so that it feels natural um, and when he first sort of told me this idea, it like, literally told me and my my brain kind of exploded. I first thing I said was that is absolute genius. And it was only later that Drew told me you know, I was the first person to get it immediately, probably because I've got the astrophysics background and because I've got a bit of mental health care background, et cetera. But it just absolutely made sense. I said, that's fantastic. That's genius. You know? um, and he was like, oh, really? Yeah, it's amazing. So that was where he first told me about it. And and. Um, uh, pretty much in that first meeting, it, you know, the original, you know, there wasn't a design of it. It was just a methodology, if you like. So we start, I started to think about how might that look to people at either end. And the design we now have that delivers this to people, which is a carousel, which carries multiple threads of conversation carefully timed. You know, I kind of scribbled that on a piece of paper um, in that first, uh, first time we chatted about it. And I've still got that piece of paper. So uh, one day we'll put it on the wall in a frame or something. So that's how, that's how the idea came about from from him telling me um, very quickly I sort of started to say you know these are some of the things about it it was super exciting um, and um, shortly after that you know I ended up leaving the company and pretty much the next phone call I got was Drew phoning me up and saying would I join him as co-founder in a business to build braiding um, it took me about three seconds to to respond <laughs> uh, uh, yes so basically that's where it all started from so I've obviously listened to you speak a few times now, and one of the things that still blows my mind is the the relative scales. Because although we've been talking, I guess, as a species about Mars for quite a long time, mm -hmm. we're obviously a lot more familiar with perhaps the moon landings and obviously the, the ISS. So, for example, if I'm sitting on the International Space Station, which by my maths is about four five hundred kilometers up. Mm -hmm. what what's the delay in a conversation if i'm there and you're on earth yeah almost nothing in, in, imperceptible so you're right the the international space station orbits uh, at about 400 kilometers so if it goes directly over your head if you're in say london it's about as far away as newcastle and you can have a phone call with someone in newcastle you could have a zoom with someone in newcastle it's easy to talk there so the actual distance um, doesn't cause hardly any delay at all to the International Space Station. It's about one one thousandth of a second. 
So let's go, um, let's go so Mars distance then. Funny. Yeah, and then you get further and further. So the moon is a lot further. And at the moon, it's like 1.3 seconds. Um, so if you're talking to someone on the moon, and obviously the Apollo astronauts were on the moon in the late 60s, early 70s. And if you listen to them, you know, it's perfectly possible to have a communication and a conversation with someone on the moon. Just need a little bit of discipline. You know, you need to wait and be patient. So if I say something, I need to wait like three seconds for you to reply. And maybe I'll talk and say over. So you know it's your turn and I'm waiting then. So that's all okay. But then as you get beyond the moon, the distances get much, much further. So getting to the moon and back, you know, the Apollo missions did it in kind of a couple of days. And that's um, that's because it's only about 400,000 kilometers away. Mars is many, many millions of kilometers away. The distance varies a lot as Mars and the Earth move around the sun in their different orbits. Um, but at its at its very closest, the distance between the Earth and Mars is so so big that it will take over three minutes for a signal to reach Mars. And if it's furthest when Earth is on one side of the sun and Mars is on the other, it's over 20 minutes. Um, so it's something like, it's about 150 times further away than the moon at its very closest, uh, and well over a thousand times further away from the moon at its furthest. And somewhere along the way on that journey, as, you, as the crew travels further than the moon, voice conversation will cease to be possible. See that, <clears throat> and that I think is the, when we first had that conversation on it suddenly for me when most people are overawed by I guess that in the sense of the scale mm. the, the rocket the concept of someone going away for 12 months 15 months however long it is but actually you're going that that layer further and going let's assume through the, the wonders of technology and everything else moving forwards that we solve you know building a big mm. enough rocket to get there and finding people that are happy to do it actually then looking at well actually let's now talk about the the operational aspects, if you like, from a psycho and, and mm. all the other things that come with it as well. And I, I think that's number one, that's fascinating to even be in that space. But number two, to go, there's nobody else on earth that's figured this out. Kind of a, at what point from that meeting where you sat down and had that discussion and then the phone call I'm in through to something tangible, what was that journey like? Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to it. And actually, before I jump into that, I'll just give you a slight aside because you're right, you know, that. Actually, um, there's this, uh, you know, the, the logistics of getting to Mars is just like, you know, bigger rockets, engineering, that kind of thing is, is stuff that human, humans are good at, right? You know, we've done it over years. So um, the hardest part of getting a human mission to Mars is going to be looking after the human being um, because they are the most complicated thing in, in those rockets. Um, and there's actually three, three groups of hazards that will affect a human going to Mars. And this is what's particularly interesting, I think, about this thing we've done on the latency challenge. So the three groups of hazards are microgravity, because you're going to be basically in microgravity for most of your journey there and back. What does that do to your body? You know, your body evolved on Earth in a 1G environment. So that's different, right? Uh, there's also radiation. So you're going to be exposed to radiation from the sun and from cosmic rays that currently the atmosphere and the magnetic field of Earth protects you from on Earth. So those are two of the big risk factors. Um, and those two risk factors actually are kind of easy to get your head around in some sense, because, you know, we've all seen films of like uh, real films from space stations or fictional films where astronauts float around. So conceptually, it makes sense to people that that happens. So when you're having conversations on Earth that says, let's try and understand, fix this, you know, everyone kind of has got a feeling for it. So same with radiation. You know, with radiation, everyone's familiar with radiation from nuclear power, from radiotherapy, 
if you've seen the aurora borealis or the aurora australis they're actually caused by radiation from the sun hitting our atmosphere so you can see radiation so those two are kind of easy to get your head around the isolation one unless you've been isolated somewhere like in a you know in, in antarctica or something is hard to get your head around and in particular the latency part of it is really hard to get your head around um because we've all evolved over millions of years in zero latency. So unless you really think about it, it's very hard to, to get your head around. And you know, along the way, I've met some very, very clever people from various space agencies and, and academic places and stuff. And, and actually, you know, even people who understand the maths and the physics quite well, it's not until you sit down with them in a bit of paper and, and kind of map it out that this journey, this challenge becomes much more apparent, if you like. So that's one of the challenges is, is people Many people, even people in the space sector, don't realize quite what a big challenge latency is going to be. So in terms of that, to answer the actual question now, having sort of teed it up, in terms of that journey, it's been kind of interesting and, and challenging and, and all that sort of stuff in its own way. But uh, we had this, you know, the, the original concept that Drew had, and we created a way of, of making it real and, and effectively sort of uh, demonstrating it, if you like. So we, we, we built a sort of, um, I wouldn't even call it a, a demonstrator. It was almost a sort of a mock-up version. It didn't work, but it was kind of there. And we thought, what are we going to do with this now? And obviously, you know, the people who are planning to go to Mars are NASA. We're over in the UK. So we've got to find a way to talk to NASA. And we had a, a well, I suppose you make your own luck, but we had a very lucky break and a very strange break at that point in time. So I was, um, I, I just happened to be looking on LinkedIn and I stumbled across the profile of, of somebody. Um, and I thought, oh, this person that's interesting, I'd love to talk to them because um, uh, this person was professor, it still is, in fact, professor of astrophysics at Rice University in Houston. And that's the university where back in the day, JFK did his send a man to the moon speech. So it's the hub of the space um, sector in, in Houston. This chap was the professor of astrophysics there. So I thought, well, I'm an astrophysicist, albeit nowhere near a professor. So maybe that's a, 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 an angle to talk to this chap. Also, I found out he was Scottish, but now lives over in the States and you know, Drew's Scottish. We're a Scottish company. Um, so I thought there's a couple of things here that are good angles. And then I found out in the way LinkedIn works that I was connected to someone who knew this person. So I reached out to her and I said, you know, could you introduce me to him? Would he have a chance? Yeah, lovely guy. He loves helping people, especially Scottish companies. So I'm sure he'd talk to you. So we had this uh, a sort of half hour uh, call with him. His name's uh, Professor David Alexander. He's now one of our advisors. Um, and we had this really weird conversation because basically um, we said uh, we've solved this problem of high latency deep space communication. And his first response, which would have been mine until I'd seen the idea, was you can't do that. There's laws of physics, speed of light. It's impossible. Stop wasting my time. So no, no. So we have. And we had this very strange half hour conversation because at that point we hadn't filed our patent application. So we couldn't talk about the idea. Um, but we sort of said, look, we've, we've solved it. And, and, and we had this half hour conversation. And after about half an hour, he said, look, I don't know what you guys are on, he said, but I can tell you're smart enough to know if this is rubbish. So I think it's something. And I'm really curious to know what it is. He said, so you need to, you need to come to Houston to come to this, this conference called the International Space Medicine Summit. And this is back in 2019, just before the pandemic. So we're like, okay, well, you know, at that point we were you know, self-funding this. We had no investment at all. Um, we said, okay, well, you know, we'll do it. This sounds worth it. Where do we buy tickets? You can't buy tickets. It's, it's an invitation-only conference. But I think what you've got, if you've got something, is potentially interesting enough that you can, you know, we can arrange you an invitation. But he said, you sure as heck, when you get here, better be able to talk about it. So that was, um, you know, a bit of a wow. And then we had to really accelerate. We were already in the process of, of filing a patent and everything. So that was, you know, intellectual property. Everything was something we'd already started. 
we had to really accelerate that to make sure everything was registered and filed in time. Um, yeah, we got on a got on plane to Houston. We found the cheapest Airbnbs we could. So you know there was a there was a hotel for the conference. We were nowhere near that. You know we were in the in the, in the back of beyond in Houston, which is you know an interesting city. Um, and uh, and we turn up and we um, we meet uh, meet David in a coffee shop in Rice University. And um, you know so we're a little bit uh, you know this is this is a professor of astrophysics. This is the guy who got us here. So we showed him our, our rough mock up and said, you know this is it. And he kind of went quiet for a few seconds, and then he, and then he sort of looked at us both. And he went, "That just might work," and it was like, you know, and that was kind of the big moment. That was kind of the. So then he, um, uh, we went into the uh, uh, the conference the next day, and you know, we were basically you know, networking with people, getting to know people. We met uh, a couple of, uh, well, a whole load of people. We met a whole load of amazing people. So I got to meet some former Apollo astronauts and all sorts of amazing stories around some of the people we met there. Um, uh, and, um, we met, uh, perhaps the most important person we met there was, um, uh, a flight surgeon who's one of the current NASA flight surgeons. And we showed him the idea and he'd already been doing a little bit of thinking about this. And he knew some academics who'd been working in this area. And he said, this is, this is really exciting. He said, he introduced us then to two academics who weren't at the conference. So they were, uh, just introduced afterwards, but they'd already done some research into, when you have high latency in communication, how damaging is that? Not psychologically, actually, but operationally. What does it do to operational conversation? Uh, and they're, basically their research paper, which had been NASA-funded project, essentially said, this is going to be a real challenge, right? This is really hard to handle when you have high latency, even in simple operational conversations. The whole conversation breaks down, um, so you need to find ways of doing it. And kind of the last line in their academic paper said, what we really need is some kind of technical or, or, or sort of uh, communication solution to this. But of course, that's impossible because you can't break the speed of light. So when we later showed them this, they were like, that's the answer we were looking for. So those linkages allowed us to build relationships to the point where we were able to um, uh, jointly apply for a NASA research grant when they asked for ideas. And we got some funding through Georgia Tech University, where one of these academics is based, um, to actually start a study on the tool that we've built to see if it works in the way we think it works. So okay. it's quite a journey. <laughs> and that's, I guess that was the thing that kind of blew my mind when you're talking about that, because existing in, I guess, in the world of entrepreneurs and things like that, I think it's relatively easy to be quite cynical of those sorts of things. If we've got this idea, it's going to be great. It's going to change the world. That moment when you're in that coffee shop and the professor says to you, this just might work. What did that feel like? Yeah, it, it felt amazing, right? It absolutely felt amazing. It was fantastic. It was, it was the, it was the first sort of external validation. Um, this is, this will sound a bit arrogant, right? But I would have been flabbergasted if you said anything else because um, we knew it worked, right? We knew it was going to work um, because we'd spent so long thinking about it no one else had obviously but we'd spent so long thinking about it we'd mocked up stuff we tested things we could see the problem and we could see the solution so it felt amazing but it in some way it didn't feel surprising it, yeah. it kind of it felt you know it, it was what we expected and i think he from the conversation we had when we couldn't talk about the detail but you know obviously you know we had enough conversation that he he um he could see that with Drew's psychology background 
uh, my astrophysics background. I've also run a few other businesses in the past and stuff, but that was irrelevant at that point in time. But um, he he could see that we, as he said at the time, because he, he could see that we weren't, you know, we weren't crazy. We weren't just making stuff up. Um, he knew that there was something there because that was um, his reason for inviting us, as it were, or for helping us to get there. Um, so, yeah, it felt amazing, but it didn't feel surprising. I don't know if that's arrogant or not. I hope not. I don't, I don't think it is because I think ultimately if you're doing your job properly from a due diligence point of view, if you're confident and know your field, whatever field you're mm. in, if you create something that does what you know it's supposed to do, then at the end of the day, you wouldn't be there standing telling people mm. that it works if it didn't work. So um, the, the thing that I, I, I want to, I guess, step forward a little bit, one of the things you mentioned earlier was about funding and actually, you know, you didn't have all of that support mm. sort of thing. So going from, you know, you've spoken to flight surgeons, you've spoken to academics and they've agreed, right, you're onto something. What does the process look like for, for a company that doesn't have that backing to then go, right, well, to build this, we need X amount. And actually, we also need to generate some form of cash flow because, as you've alluded to, we're not going to Mars for a little while. So what does that look like getting from that conference, I guess, almost up to where we are today? Yeah, so, um, uh, so yeah, there's a bunch of different things that you have to think about and do there. So first of all, you know, from the very earliest days of me talking to Drew about it, um, you know, and, and some of the first things people, you know, friends and, and contacts have said, it's like, you know, said, well, yeah, no one's going to Mars for 15 years. It's like, well, that doesn't mean that there's no revenue for our company on the space side for 15 years. So... Uh, or no income, not necessarily revenue, but, you know, so research happens all the time. So one of the things I'd, I'd love to find out, I don't know if anyone uh, will ever help me find out, but I'm sure a whole bunch of spacesuits get made that never go into space. They get used in training and development and things like that and, and, and preparation. So we know that as things evolve, there's going to be some work going on to go, well, let's find different ways of communicating. We're working, as I mentioned, in, in a grant that's funded by NASA through Georgia Tech. We're also working with the European Space Agency now and the UK Space Agency. So other space agencies are looking at these challenges of communication, how it evolves over time. Now, this is, you know, this is relatively small, very small sums of money, but it's just, you know, uh, funds research, funds activity that helps us to further prove the value. And there's obviously some um, uh, income there to the company that helps to, to, to defray some costs. So that's something that we knew from day one would be there. And we expect that to continue um, you know, for the next decade or so and, and possibly gradually increase as people look into, you know, personal preferences and different crews and how to use things. So that's one thing. But we also knew from, from day one, two things that, you know, that would be a really fascinating, uh, but small, probably smallish business. Um, but we also thought a lot from day one about how what we were building could potentially be used on Earth. And this is where we've now got uh, the beginnings of literally a couple of weeks ago, actually went live, uh, a product on Earth that's based on the same methodology. So the methodology, the way we created this way of, of interleaving conversations um, uh, was something that we realized from very early days could potentially be a, a tool to use on Earth. Now, with that, we were able to come up with some kinds of um, uh, thinking about, well, what might that business look like? Uh, and again, we had a couple of uh, you know, helpful things there. So I said, you know, the fact that, that Drew and I are so different in so many ways means that you know we're, we're a good team right so stuff i can do he can't do stuff he can do i can't do and that's something that's quite powerful when you're looking to try to 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 raise um investment so we started as many companies do we raised some money from friends and family basically so uh we started to do that i as i said i've had a couple of businesses myself in the past um 
uh, you know, going back like almost 20 years now, I started my first business. So I've already got experience of simple things like how do you set up a company? How do you set up a company in such a way that it becomes an investable company? Um, so that you've got, you know, think I mentioned earlier on the intellectual property. So the uh, all of the rights in the design and the and the and the creation of, of braiding, it doesn't belong to me and it doesn't belong to Drew. It belongs to Braided Communications Limited. So if someone's investing in the in the company, they know that they're investing in a share of the stuff the company owns. Now that's fairly obvious when you say it like that but it's amazing how few people you know yeah. know that up front you have to learn that somewhere on the line i learned it a long way away so things like that all came together so we started by um as i said getting some you know friends family um close contacts to to actually invest and we managed to get some uh some money from that not much we haven't raised much at all um and then along the way we were introduced to a uh, a small um venture capital company um uh, who who also put in a little bit of money after a while, and of course, when when we went through that stage, that's another step up in terms of kind of professionalism. So, as a venture capital company, even though they put in a relatively small sum, they don't even put in a pound without everything being yeah. properly structured. So, we went through all that process. It's kind of it's kind of boring, but it's really really important yeah. um, to get all that right. And and that so our friends and family kind of invested because they know me or they know Drew or they quite like the idea of space. And also it wasn't, you know, for some, you know, if someone's got a few quid, they're lucky enough to have that, then it can be a, an exciting and a, and a good thing to do. Um, a venture capital company invests because they see the potential in the future of the business. And that was on the space side, but also on the, the, um, uh, on the, the, the meeting side on earth, which we've created now, which I can talk about in a bit more depth. And I think some of the things around that were the fact that we had a, obviously we built, something now for space so to adapt it for earth was relatively low cost and relatively low risk so we already knew some of the pitfalls that we'd fallen into before and climbed out of so we weren't going to fall into them when we built the version for earth as i said things like the fact that my first business happened to be conference calls and web conferencing so it was back in the early days of conference calls and web conferencing in the uk collaboration services business so the fact that i'd already been through that that journey um, uh, is again a sort of a, a beneficial thing when people think, well, this isn't, you know, this, this isn't uh, a team that's never been out there trying to build a business from scratch. So a few things like that we knew were in our favour when we started to ask questions. Still wasn't easy, but it was, uh, it, it was possible. I think um, what's really interesting, and I was just kind of thinking as you were talking there about the the, the testing element of it, because actually it's not difficult at all. If you like to test a product like this, you just have to have a 20, 10, 15 minute delay on a conversation with people sitting in two rooms. So you can actually test, if you like, the whether the product actually works mm. relatively simply on earth. But the thing that really fascinated me off what you just said there was the fact that you had a product that was effectively not designed for earth. And that became where you went with it in terms of like in yeah. the short term. And that's that there are very few people I can think of that would even be able to describe having a product that they were like, we invented something to go to the moon with. And then we looked at our, where we were going to go next with it and decided Earth was probably the place we were going to settle with it. So has that been kind of a weird thing from a, I guess, from a business point of view to kind of go, that's going to be our next focus as opposed to getting to Mars? Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. But well, actually, I'll just challenge you on the first thing about it's not that easy to test. So testing with people in different rooms it's actually a bit yeah that we put a lot of work into that so i can tell you about that maybe another yeah. another day right because there's a lot into that as well it's really 
not as easy as it might sound to do that, but we've done that and we've got some of, a whole bunch of those tests going on and we'll be doing more of them. But yeah, um, I've got a slide somewhere, you know, obviously all companies end up generating lots of slide decks and, and one pages and bits and pieces. And I've got a slide somewhere that says um, uh, Earth is our second market, um, uh, which is obviously very tongue in cheek, but it's kind of true. You know, literally we're at, uh, our first income as a company, our first external income has come from um, space agencies and it's come from space agencies for, for doing research work into this into this capability because potentially it might help them in their journeys in future. Um, so very much the case that uh, Earth is our second market. And interestingly, now that we have got this uh, capability to um, help people on Earth, we're starting to do some networking and some reach outs, etc. So um, I was at an event in, in London a couple of days ago, um, kind of one of these business network events that is slowly starting to open up again face to face. And I was kind of I, I was there to talk about our product for Earth braided meetings. Um, and and I, I you know, speak to a whole bunch of strangers. It's kind of kind of interesting. And you have a chance to sort of try things out. And the first person I spoke to, I thought, I'm going to tell them the space side of the story very quickly and succeeding and saying you know, we started we, I said a little pitch. I mean, our, our company does two things. First one sounds weird, but it's completely true. We built a tool for deep space communication for astronauts. And the second thing is how that can help you on Earth. And I was watching this person to see if they glazed over and went, this guy's crazy. But they were really interested. And it, it seems like, you know, I thought that the universe of people or, or the, the population of people interested in the space side would be quite small. But it seems like everyone finds that quite an interesting story. Obviously, we don't go into debt. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the angle of saying this genuinely has been created to help people go to Mars in future and now genuinely can help you in your business seems to be a really um, interesting angle to people. Yeah, definitely. And I think anyone who's got kids asking them at six, seven, eight years old, what do you want to do when you grow up? I would say there's a large proportion of them that say, I want to be an astronaut because it's something that captures your yeah. imagination. And you, you mentioned earlier about growing up. And actually, I don't think most of us ever do. There's still the, the little child there that's captured by. And I think this is one of the things when you watch spectacles whatever it is mm. you know i remember watching when musk launched the um the tesla into and it opens yeah. up and there's the space map and you just you have no you might have no interest in space at all but you mm. watch that and you go wow in the same mm. way that when you watch i don't know the opening ceremony at an olympic games or uh it very recently them discovering the endurance uh under antarctica yeah. It almost that it brings out that inner, I guess, child that's in you of anything's possible, and you could you could quite yeah. literally do anything. You don't have that inhibition, so that's kind of a, a, I guess, a really interesting angle. And I think that's something that if if I was a customer sitting on the other side of of that conversation, I can't I can think of very few people who would not want to have their mind kind of yeah, I guess, hooked in by actually something that mm. is fascinating because yeah, I, I just think for, for, it makes sense. Yeah, no, you 100% agree with you. I mean, the, the, you know, the sort of like anything's possible. I still, I'm still waiting for that call to become a professional footballer. I was never any good. Um, I'm still no good, but I still play. So, you know, I still think maybe one day. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I absolutely agree with what you said there. I think the thing about you, you can, you've got an interesting thing to talk about. That's great. But you've also, obviously, when you come to a business, you've got to be able to help someone do something better or solve a problem for them. If you can't do that, <laughs> Um, then you know there, there's kind of no point. So you know you you, you you've got to have something that's of value because you can have a chat over coffee about going to Mars and spaceships. 
but you're never going to get the customer to buy something from you unless it helps them. So that's the thing that's the that's the, the sort of next big challenge for us. And it's that's what's been actually one of the really interesting parts of the journey about Drew and I being so different because what we've built with this tool on earth is a different way of having virtual meetings. Um, and what we've found is that what it does is it, um, is it kind of levels the playing fields in a particular way, which we think is going to be really valuable, which is the fact that everyone I talked about earlier on about the astronauts and everyone being on a spectrum of kind of uh, you know, emotional dependence or not and, and where people were trying to go with that and how you could have a team of people who were less susceptible to emotional isolation, but they wouldn't make a good crew. That's one aspect of the way everyone's different. Another one is um, introverts and extroverts. So everyone is somewhere on the introvert and extrovert spectrum. Um, uh, and some people are very strongly at one end or the other and some are in the middle and, and that, that's fine. Everyone's somewhere there. But actually, when you think about a couple of key things about businesses today, particularly business meetings, business meetings, whether it's face to face or virtual, are generally better for extroverts than they are for introverts, simply because of the way extroverts think and behave and introverts think and behave. Um, and so an introvert in a, in a meeting, the introverts in general, huge generalization here, so don't take the wrong way, but introverts in general like to think more deeply before they say something. And quite often, if you are in a meeting and you're an introvert, you'll be just about to say something because you think you're comfortable now. And then one of those extroverts will have become uncomfortable with the silence. They will jump in um, and they will say something probably not thought through because extroverts in general, huge generalization again, are talking as they're thinking. So what tends to happen is um, uh, is a, a, an introvert won't say anything because they would have been about to say something and they've been interrupted and they don't want to interrupt back. The extrovert will say something because they're silent and they feel uncomfortable uh, and they start talking and you end up with the output of the meeting being a sort of like a, in simple terms, a half thought through idea from an extrovert rather than a fully thought through idea from an introvert. Um, and at the end of the meeting, that's what was said. So that was the reality. So if you can find a way to sort of level the playing field, so in simple terms, the introverts have more opportunity and obligation to, to contribute and the extroverts have less opportunity to uh, interrupt and and talk without thinking then you've potentially got something that can be uh, can be really really valuable and actually we thought about this a long time ago and within our company you know I'm very much at the extrovert end of the scale Drew's very much at the introvert end of the scale so when we've thought about some of the meetings that he and I were in at the company we were at before you only start to realize now just how much more valuable those meetings could have been if we were thinking um, along those lines about how to get the most out of everybody on the introvert extrovert spectrum so that's where we're going with it now and so let's explore that solution a little bit then so for pretty much everyone out there over the last few years has become comfortable in some capacity with a virtual meeting um, but mm -hmm. it's probably ex exactly what you're talking about there seeing the the challenges of it you know I think of some of the group meetings that I had certainly during lockdown one there might have been 40 people on the call and maybe mm -hmm. four people were the ones doing the talking even though it was a group meeting so how does the solution, if you like, that you've uh, gone to your second market with on Earth, how does that get over that? Um, so uh, a great question. Actually, you know, we didn't talk in huge detail about exactly how it looks for the astronauts, but I, I think I mentioned briefly that the messages are on a carousel. So it's a software delivered solution. So if you were on Mars and I was on Earth, we would both be logging in and looking at a screen which has kind of a, um, a carousel with multiple panels on it that rotates between us. Um, at a cadence that we can we can control as we wish, as it were. Um, so you're 
it's a typed entry at the moment. So you would be typing about one thing on Mars. Maybe you're running the farm and you're telling me about how the tomatoes are growing. Um, I'm typing about something on Earth, um, uh, you know, something about sports that I've been involved in. And then after say, a couple of minutes, the carousel rotates one stop and the content that you've been typing about tomatoes starts its journey to me and the content I've been typing about sports starts its journey to you. And what we do is we configure it so that over, over a brief period of time, after a while, as the carousel rotates, you'll get fresh content from me every time it rotates and I'll get fresh content from you. And that's how it feels like it's a natural conversation. So that's how it works with kind of a, a, a big latency and two people. On Earth, there's no latency. So you don't need to sort of uh, take the time for those panels of content to travel and, and be in another one. So therefore, if you've got four, five, six panels on a carousel, you can have four, five, six people interacting simultaneously. So what we do is we create it like that. So there's, say, five topics. So one use case that's emerging quite strongly here is in technical development teams. Um, where there's this approach called agile development, which is a, the, the modern way of developing software where teams work in what they call a sprint cycle. So every two weeks, the team will, will develop a new iteration of the product and then they'll share that with the, the customer, internal or external, uh, and then they'll get feedback and then they'll iterate again. And that's the way, um, uh, way it works. And at the end of each sprint, these teams typically have what they call a retrospective meeting where they're going, well, what, what was good last time? You know, what, did we, what did we miss out on? Um, uh, what, was, uh, what could we do better next time? These retrospective meetings are a standard part of this. But because those development teams typically are dominated numerically by introverts, they don't talk much in those meetings. You've got that dynamic I talked about before, where if there are a small number of people who are more extrovert than the others, they'll be the ones who talk most. That will be the output, which probably doesn't reflect what everyone thought. With braiding, each person is um, on a braid individually with their own time to think and add their thoughts without anybody else interrupting. Everyone's on a different braid at the same time. So you have more contribution in that everyone is simultaneously contributing, but there's say five topics. One of, the, one of, the, um, uh, one of these retro uh, 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 sort of methods is called starfish. It's got five arms, so there's kind of five topics. That's one of the standard ways of doing it. Um, so five people are on that meeting. Each of them is talking about a different um, topic, but on their own and they can add their thoughts. And then it's only when the carousel rotates that those thoughts get taken to the next person around the carousel. And then that person can see the next topic. They can see what their colleagues have said and they can go, well, what's my view on this? So each person gets to contribute um, independently uh, without being interrupted and said, you know, the benefit there for the introverts is they feel much more comfortable like that. They like to think, they like to talk like that. No one's going to interrupt them. For the extroverts, it feels a little bit weird because they're not able to talk continuously. But in terms of value of output for the meeting, that's an improvement because actually that's what you want is you want the extroverts to think more deeply and say something more valuable rather than talk to fill the silence. Huge generalizations there, but broadly that's yeah. the way it works. So in my head, I've got, I'm brainstorming on a wall at the same time that someone on the other side of the wall is brainstorming uh, and effectively nobody's interrupting each other. And I think mm. that's something that for anyone who's sat in a meeting, or to be honest, even in social situations, you have those evenings where you're at a, I don't know, a dinner party and there's mm. eight people sitting around the table and it's one person just talking nonstop. Yeah. And I can, I can certainly being at the extrovert end of the spectrum, appreciate how challenging that is because that's something I think I've had to get a lot better at. And if you listen to episode one of the podcast versus up into the 70s where we are now, actually, 
it's a discussion that gets better because I've been more aware of that. But that's taking two, three years. This would solve it in minutes that that problem. So I think from a from a value added point of view, obviously depending on what industry you work in and how you do your meetings, especially for companies that are globally based, it's um it's a fascinating kind of thing. So it must be quite an exciting place to be now, where you've kind of got the the rubber stamp from the various space agencies to say, look, there's something in this and we're going to support looking into it further. But at the same time, you're kind of scratching the business itch of your those experiences mm. that you've had and those two journeys are kind of happening concurrently. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's exciting. It's it's um it's hugely busy. It's hugely scary. You know, the business one literally only a couple of weeks ago went live. So it's very early days for that. Um, and in the meantime, the space stuff is still kind of, you know, taking taking time and keeping us excited. So, yeah, it's it's been um it's been fantastic, but it's only the beginning of the journey, I think. Well, I want to talk a little bit about reflections because the story on its own is a wow. But I think having been on that journey yourself and obviously with the range of things that you've you've come across let's let's talk problem solving because obviously ultimately a product or anything that goes out there is effectively a solution to an issue that exists so what have kind of been your views if you like or lessons that you've taken away from this problem solving journey that you've been on um so that's a that's a great question obviously and we could talk about that for a whole another hour i think but uh, i think a couple of things is um uh kind of understand your own strengths and not you necessarily individually but your, your team strengths but never, never be kind of limited, if you like, by your um, uh, by your weaknesses, because you can always learn and find other people to help you with your, your weaknesses, if you like. So, so as I said, some of the things we had in our favour when we first started this journey is, you know, I, I ran my own business before. Um, uh, Drew understands the psychology and, and the uh, emotional impact of this in, in depth. I understood the maths and the physics in depth. Those were all great, actually. But when I think back then to when I started my first meeting I'd never run a business before but I did my planning and I did my thinking and I talked to a lot of other people about how to run businesses and I learned lessons and actually when I did that first business I kind of did it deliberately to go and learn lessons about how, how to how to sell I'd never been a salesperson before for example so as long as you're um, uh, you're not kind of naive to your weaknesses then you can be aware of them and you can go out there and you go I'm going to do things that might expose me to that but they're going to help me learn along the way and I'm going to make sure I've got people to support me as best I can along the way and there is a lot of help out there uh, there's a lot of people you know who are keen to help so you know I'm um, personally I've you know I, I've done mentoring over the years and I know a lot of people who are keen to help and support um, uh, younger people sort of being mentored the you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned before we started recording about the lecture I did recently to the University College London um, department. Um, I know that was there were some kind of professors and, and postdocs on there, but there were some students as well. And those students were, you know, some of them are looking at how do they get onto the entrepreneurial journey. And, and, and those people are, you know, some of them reach out for help. And you should do that because you'll get help. Well, that kind of dovetails, I guess, nicely into, I guess, the last bit of advice to pull this together. I did quite a lot of talks to students and even with my hat on that I've got now, you know, recently I spoke to a group of um, sports science students that were going on that journey into the wider world. And actually, mm -hmm. if you'd have said to a sports psychology student, do you, would you deem there being space in the space industry for the career path you're on now? And they probably never even joined the dots. And now actually, if you think of a, an astronaut effectively is mm. an athlete that needs a team around them you're going to end up with effectively like a space support team like you'd have for any other elite athlete and actually the career paths for people going into space perhaps are a lot more open than they were maybe even 10 or 20 years ago and it's conversations like this that perhaps 
perhaps kind of go from the drawing of I want to be an astronaut to actually on oh, now about to make a choice on career paths and that's a viable mm. one so what's kind of your thoughts having now been on that journey about people that are potentially looking to get into the space industry um yeah no you're 100 correct i mean first of all it, it, it's um you know that there's a lot more activity going on there's a lot more recognition now about how space brings benefit on earth as well so you know all the remote sensing from satellites that can help to understand things like you know, warming of the oceans and, uh, and and all sorts of stuff like that so there's much more um uh, of of a, an industry around space rather than just you know, space science if you like so that means there's much more opportunities um and i think that point you know so that we talked about you know, introvert extroverting you know inclusion if you like that point about inclusion is is something that more and more people realize and they don't realize and just talk about it, they actually do now to a degree which is you don't want you know a team of people who are all the same with the same academic background trying to solve the same problem you want people who've got different viewpoints so if someone's got a sports science background um uh, that could bring them a whole load of academic skills but also a whole lot of motivational skills that other people might lack and I think there is much more openness to sort of uh, people like that being uh, encouraged and welcome to to come into the space sector or parts of the space sector um, so yeah if people want to to um, uh, to explore those opportunities I'd encourage them to do so and that the UK actually um, uh, published a, a space strategy uh, late last year um uh, and actually that talks about you know how we bring in people with different skills into the space sector but it talked about the space sector very widely you know it's uh, uh, it, it's all about um, how you take information from space and use it how you add value into um uh, into future missions or whatever it might be there's there's a whole plethora of activities um so yeah go out there and look and you'll find it quite easily that's another thing it's all available it's always e- always easy to find these days much better than when i was young <laughs> Yeah, and you say about looking, and I think I work uh, not too far from in Hertfordshire from Stevenage, where a couple mm. of the big space companies are based. And it, every time you drive down one of the dual carriageways, there's a huge sign up on one of the sides of the building saying "Home of the Mars Rover." And I think, oh, is there? How oh, cool! Which is yeah. So mm. and, and that that is tangible. And I think mm. if you go back. 50, 60, 70 years to the, the various space activities through the 50s, 60s, 70s. Mm. It was on a screen. It might have been mm. on your TV, but it certainly wasn't live streamed. It certain. I remember watching when Tim Peake was up in the the ISS doing a live video call with a mm. group of young kids back on Earth at a school, and you think, "Wow, that's really going to start the the cogs wearing of actually young people mm. potentially pursuing their dreams." So, now it's been it's been absolutely fascinating. I the second you told me when we I was sitting on that train about what you did, I was already thinking I have to share this story. So I, it's really nice to kind of have pulled it together now to, to where we are now. And obviously, we'll make sure both with obviously the project itself, as well as all these other things that are going on around it, we include the links to everything in there. Um, and, cool. and hopefully people can, can follow up and, and see the journey that's gonna be a very exciting one. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you this morning. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. And don't forget, we've got a back catalogue of content that goes all the way back to January 2020, including fighter pilots, Olympic champions, TV presenters and inspiring authors. We'd really appreciate it if you can give us a quick rate and review, however you're joining us today. And if you don't want to miss out on any future episodes, make sure you hit subscribe. Our community update drops once a month and we've got some great guest content being added, so be sure to sign up for that. 
And finally, we're all about inspiring and supporting as many people as possible. So if you can share this episode with one person that you think would enjoy it, that would be really, really cool. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of the Road Monkey Podcast.